don't know if you know this, Sean, but Halloween is coming. Right? So I've already seen Christmas decorations at some local larger oh. stores. Fuck off. Um, Halloween first. Okay, I don't care if you recognize Thanksgiving or not. I know that's sort of a colonist holiday. But Halloween matters, man. I mean, there were people who were hiding in caves, carving turnips into frightening faces to keep the spirits at bay during the time of year when the membrane between this world and the next was at its thinnest. Sam Hain matters, man. And you know what they didn't anticipate? What's that? Murder squirrels. The squirrels in front of our house. My wife, you know, our kids are we're empty nesters. These squirrels have eaten the faces out of our jack-o'-lanterns like it's some kind of treat. Well, it, it's sad, It man. technically is a, a vegetable, and that's what the squirrels will eat. I mean... They just need some fiber before they go down for the long winter's nap. Be honest. I mean, yeah. that's why... The the pumpkin timing, the jack-o'-lantern timing is crucial because I was thinking about it the other day. I'm like, nope, too soon because we also live in a very squirrel-adjacent area. We do. Oh, well, actually, you and I live in the same neighborhood we now, do. don't we? We do, yeah. Jesus. Well, next year, you'll know better. One week before, never sooner, and keep them behind the door until the kids can't crush them anymore. I am Brian Oak. It is the Brian Oak Show, episode 194 of this particular podcast sorry okay it's fine i just i had a big gulp of this rather bougie italian sparkling soda before it got started so hang on let me catch my breath let me try that again hi ladies and gentlemen my name is brian oak it's episode 194 of the brian oak show along with sean bernard hi sean how's it going it's going pretty well actually good good yeah i just got back from a long weekend up north and um it was good, man. We were going to go deep into the woods. We were going to go into the boundary waters. We were going to get weird. We were going to get wild, like the, just like the old days. And then the forecast called for like 30% chance of rain, yeah. and we're like, screw that. We're going to my friend's cabin, which we did, and it was wonderful. Sleeping in, hanging out, laughing, playing games, playing poker. Those guys just got tooled. And now it is weird to go on those trips, though, now that I don't drink anymore. Uh, with them doing that, I'm like, no, it's cool. It's cool. You guys have fun. <laughs> Oh, already 8.30. I'm going to bed. Yep, yep. And I mean, but you know what? Better that than the alternative, which otherwise I probably wouldn't be here right now. Well, do they just get louder and louder and louder the drunker and drunker they get? Have you ever met anyone that didn't get louder when they got drunk? Well, that's I'm, I'm Except for the sad ones. Like, they're, they're the sad drunks who just, like, suddenly sort of retire and vanish into their <laughs> chair. And those, I'd rather be around a loud drunk myself. And they want to tell you about their horrible childhood. Oh, man, you're making me miss drinking right now. <laughs> At Shaw Bernard, I am Brian Oak. We are recording this in the Smart Start MN studio. Before we go any further, we're going to talk to a guest today that I feel like he and I, our Venn diagram, we probably have hundreds, if not thousands of mutual acquaintances and friends and colleagues, but we've never had a chance to sit down face to face. And I'm actually thrilled to be able to talk to him. That's why, Sean, I don't know if I told you ahead of time, this is going to be a special four hour edition of the Brian Oak show. I didn't agree to that. Recorded here in the Smart Start studio. I know I do too. (laughs) And I'm very much looking forward to talking to John Fields, producer to the stars, to the everydays, to... But a guy, I mean... Huge Minnesota uh, music advocate, too. That's the other thing. To the end. In fact, I have a great story in that regard coming up in just a little bit. But one of us, but also a guy who's been all over and literally seen it as big and as small as it gets and understands the nature of it. And I I have so many questions because I I love to pull musicians' brains apart and find out how they write music, where they came from, how they approach it. And to me... A good producer, which this guy has got written all over him thousands of times over, 
they're the the next member of the band. They're the fourth member, the yes. fifth member, the sixth member, whatever. And that's not an easy relationship, you know. And to be able to come in and be creative and read, I mean, think about musicians, right? They're flakes. We all know that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. To be able to come in, read them, coddle them, nurture them, prod them, all of those things. It's not a duty that I would envy ever, but there are few people who are better and, frankly, with more results in their back pocket. You have to have humility and command, which is really challenging in the producer role. And if you want to, I mean, sure, you can bring a pistol into the studio if you want to be an absolute murderer like Phil Spector. Luckily, John (laughs) Fields, to the best of my knowledge, has never done that. I don't. But look, we're not even going to go there. We'll talk about that coming up just ahead. But I do need to mention Smart Start MN. Smart Start MN is Minnesota's original ignition interlock company they're the ones who worked with the state to put this into place so if you or someone who matters to you or someone you even know that you like you want to throw them a bone they got a dui they fucked up but they can get back on the road they can pull things back online and get back in their car sooner and for less money than they might otherwise expect yeah and the weird thing about this time of the year is you're going to have those duis where people are in their halloween costumes Mm. I just feel bad for those people because they'll have those photos for a very long time. A very long time. Yeah. There you are standing there for your mugshot with like a Jack Skellington, but like a crappy one because you're <laughs> drunk and half of it fell off. And your makeup smeared. Don't do that. Do call our friends at Smart Start MN or go online, which is even easier. SmartStartMN.com slash Brian Oak Show. They'll get you 20% off the installation of your ignition interlock. So I want to play a song that was produced in part by John Strawberry fields and also another guy who's been on this show before that i didn't know he had a hand in this until john just told me we're going to dive deep with john as deep as this hour allows but when i go back and think about the 90s right the 90s were such an explosive and incredible and really amazing time in music not just in the twin cities but around the country and around the world things changed in the 90s Mm -hmm. there was you know dirt and noise which there had been plenty of it throughout the 80s but there was this sort of reaffirmation of power pop which again existed through the 80s as well frankly i don't think power pop ever really went away but there were local bands when it was much more fashionable to be loud and brash decided they're going to make incredibly beautiful catchy rock music rex daisy guys and dolls one of my all-time favorites i almost picked a song off that which this guy also happened to fucking produce but he also had a hand in producing this right here we've played this song before but aaron seymour who i know to this day and love dearly the front man for this particular band yeah the delilah's beats the hell out of me on the brian oak show Yeah. 
So watching our next guest air drum to that particular <laughs> song, which he produced more than 35 years, 25 years ago. Sorry about that. Not trying to make us older than we already are. You knew exactly where the hits were going to come. You knew exactly how it sounded. Given the fact that you have produced thousands of songs, literally for hundreds of records, John Fields, I mean, do you remember them all like a, a photo from childhood? How, how did that come? How I mean, you hit every note perfectly? It's somehow, you know, when you're working on the song, you repeat, you repeat, you rinse, yes. you repeat, yeah. you rinse, you yeah. repeat all, all day long. You know, usually, uh, you know, sometimes over a week. Let's bring that up again. It just gets baked in there. And uh, is it that way with all of them? Like, do you pretty, remember all of it? Pretty much. Wild, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't have that kind of room in my brain. John Fields is a Minnesotan with a legacy of not only being here for a very influential and really important part of our history, but then moving to L.A. and working with literally some of the biggest names in music. And we'll get to all that momentarily. But John Fields, it is wonderful to have you here. I've read your name on the back of so many CDs that it's sort of dizzying. So right there, Minnesota Music from from the early 90s, Delilah's, their self-titled release. And I was also mentioning the other thing I was thinking about playing was Rex Daisy, Changing Your Mind, Off Guys and Dolls. Oh, before we get away, there's too much. There's, uh, it's well, going to well, have to be a four-hour show. Before we get away from it, you told me about that yes. one right there. Beats the hell out of me. You co-produced that with none other than a previous guest of this podcast, John Munson? Correct. Um, the When I had met the Delilah's, so my uncle Steve kind of started a record label called October Records with, I guess, with me. He just said, you know... Is there October Records? Like, I'm trying to look in my head. Is that the Leaf yes, logo? I, yes. Okay, I know it. So, um, and and uh, unbeknownst to me, Uncle Steve had, had found a demo from this band, the Delilahs, who I didn't know any of them. And um, he wanted to sign this band, and I I really liked him. And, of course, he said, so, so he signs the band, and he says, you're going to work with my nephew producing you. And they don't know me. <laughs> and they go, well, and we, like, oh, we, we want to use this guy, John Munson, from uh, Trip Shakespeare. And I say, well, I mean, I knew John from having worked with some other stuff. I think, what was the thing we had worked together? It was Kristen Mooney was, okay. a, was a project we had worked on pre- previously. And, um, and I was like, well, I don't know. Let's do it together. I mean, he was he's not an engineer type, so they needed still someone to do that stuff and like the actual technical bit. Yeah, kind of. Right. He's not he's not a guy that kind of. He likes sound. He likes feel, but someone actually has to twiddle the knobs. So it was it was pretty obvious that we should just do it together, and it turned out to be a great relationship to which we still have. You know, today we're we're buddies for thirty years or whatever. So um, we did the Delilahs two records together, both of them, and um. There's your John Munson story. Well, I, I mean, again, and John Munson is one of those. To me, he's sort of a unicorn, right? Because he's so bright, he's so articulate, and then suddenly you're not sure that you're talking to a human being. He, it seems like his brain could be just about anywhere. But I always enjoy being in his company. I, I freaking love John Munson. Fantastic dude, absolutely. So the other song I almost played because I was trying to find something early '90s or early John Fields adjacent, right? I almost played Rex Daisy, and Rex Daisy. You know, when Guys and Dolls came out, um, I think what stuck on am that was probably the one that most local radio stations or any sort of local attention got given to but again this is pre-internet this is when college radio only pays attention if they're on am i mean but that record mattered to me because not unlike delilah's it's a gorgeous power pop record like a gorgeous power pop record written and played by real people and that was also a record you did so yeah i had 
I had kind of come in for the cleanup on that one. Mm -hmm. Mike, Steve, and Jerry had gone to Los Angeles to work with a big wig producer named Paul Fox and made the record at a studio. I remember it was called Grandmaster Studio, and they had had a. Uh, it was especially where it's it's kind of a famous studio. It's 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 on Cahuenga in the middle of Hollywood, right? And it was where the Foo Fighters made their second record, "The Color and the Shape," yeah, and uh, which was I think before that. And um, there was a flood in said studio, and Paul Fox was looking for a cheaper place to work with this kind of you know smaller budget band from right. Minnesota. And there was a flood, so they had the they got the flood deal at this studio. <laughs> Apparently, I don't know if it was if it was moldy, if it was wet, or what right, it was. Right. But um, don't so, go downstairs. Don't now, go downstairs. This is right at the beginning of cell phones, but I think Mike, the singer, was not really an early cell phone adopter. So right. they go off to Los Angeles. I'm very excited to hear what's going to happen. They're working, you know, with a, a a big producer and a really nice studio and all that, and. So he comes back after the month that they spend out there and he says, John, it's I it was I ah, I just want to redo all the vocals. Can we redo all the vocals, please? That's a lot. Uh, you know, good 10, 12 songs. Well, I think it's, it's worth <laughs> mentioning, too, when you talk about Paul Fox, for people who are not familiar, this is the guy who produced XTC. I mean, yeah, Origin Lemons. Lemons. Yeah. He, he actually did quite a few Minnesota groups. He had done the first major label record by Tina Schleski yeah, and yeah, Tina huh? and the B-Sides. And then he did the Semisonic first record yep. in the, into the, the Great Cross. What's the Great Divide? Something. I, I think it's just called Great Divide. Great Divide yeah. And they have the song um, Across the Great Divide. And, yeah. um, you know, and just kind of grabbed all these jobs and just took with it, you know, and, 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 but loved as he should, when he heard the demos for Rex Daisy, he was blown away as we all were mm -hmm. with the, the quality of writing and, and singing and everything about this, this group and did the record. And, you know, they did it quick down and dirty. And I think what happened is they, they just quick rocked it out. This is before computers or anything like that. Right. Mixed it analog came back, you know, Mike, the singer has a dat tape. He he plays it for me, and he's like, "I just want to redo the vocals. Can we just do that, please?" So we took the instrumental mixes, which you always make when you're making a record and mixing a record. You turn off the vocals at one point, and right. you make an instrumental mix. They use that for commercials and sync placements and so forth. So we had the instrumental mixes. We jammed them onto my A dat, which is an eight track uh, digital v VHS machine, essentially, mm -hmm. and then resang the vocals all on the entire album, and then kind of remixed. It's it's you know. It's not remixing like the drums and so forth, but it was basically re, re putting together the record again. So I kind of came in as a additional co-producer at the end, kind of a guy. And I think Mike was much happier. And then they kind of, I think, I believe they were dropped off of Geffen records who actually paid for the record in the first place. And then Pravda picked it up and put it out. And that's why it is out on Pravda. Well, that, I mean, but it's a great, great record. One of my favorites of the era. And before we get too far into it, <clears throat> I want to make sure people who did not catch it, John Fields is an internationally acclaimed and recognized record producer. It is more than safe to say that you are involved with multi-platinum numbers of records. The, the number of records that you have produced that have gone on to sell let's just say the number's probably in the tens of millions, if Brian, not more than it's that. all streams now. No, I understand that. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. But you got involved before it was even all streams. I mean, literally millions and millions and millions. You know, you've worked with well-known local artists. You've worked with people like Jimmy World, the Goo Goo Dolls, Andrew WK. But you've also worked with some of the biggest names in pop music like Demi Lovato and the Jonas Brothers. 
playing, producing, doing all of it. I mean, you've seen the whole thing. So before, after we hear a song coming up very shortly here, we talk about your ascendancy, your move to Hollywood, where you threw your Midwestern I'm roots. I'm going to be very dirt. interested to hear that. Yeah, well, <laughs> me too. Me too. Um, but before we get there, where are you from? I'm from Newton, Mass. Newton, right Mass. Right outside of Boston. How do you end up in Minnesota? My mother was from St. Paul, and uh, my so we had my... My mother's family all lived here, and my mother's little brother was a and is a super rock star named Steven Greenberg, and is the kind of started the band Lip Sync and yeah. wrote, wrote and produced the song Funky Town. I'm familiar. So I'm a little kid, and that becomes a huge hit, and I think it was just pretty obvious that I wanted to do that as well. He's also a rocking drummer. Yeah. And uh, so imagine you're like a 10-year-old kid, and you're... Your uncle has the number one song in the, in America, and you're just freaking out and like, I want in, I want in, and so it was just, uh, it was you know, as soon as I could get here, I got here, and I was 19 when I moved to Minneapolis. See, that's fascinating. One of my favorite things is I don't mind not knowing everything. I've never been one of those guys like I got to be the cool kid. I know everything. I already have all the facts. That's new information to me. That's a brilliant story right there. I, I did not realize that was your uncle. So, okay, fine. You get here. Are you already a musician? You've obviously fallen in love with music at a much younger age than that, but are you a musician? Because to me, what's interesting is how do you decide... You know, there everybody wants to be a musician, right? Everyone wants to be a rock star. They want to play the drums. They want to play the guitar. They want to be behind the microphone and be the face and pretty and wearing scarves and whatever. <laughs> but I mean, I don't. I, other than unless you're sort of like, well, I, coming from radio, I know a lot of technical nerds. Unless you're someone who loves that end of it, what makes you want to be behind the board? I'll tell you, it just it has to be my uncle's influence on me because i wouldn't have known anything about it because obviously we grew up in a time when there was no internet there's no researching i mean i I have every beatles book as a as a teenager i was obsessed with the beatles and i would open those books and be like oh there's a recording studio there's a microphone but then i had this cool uncle in minnesota that would tell me and would actually you know he he bought me a four-track tape recorder when i was like 14 years old and so I could make my own shady demos and uh, a microphone and then a drum machine and then a drum set. And so I had this influence that was really pushing me into this world that I became obsessed with. And then one spring break in uh, March of 85, I believe, uh, during high school, he said, come on out to Minnesota. I'm going to be making a couple. We're doing a session um, at this studio called Creation Studio in on Nicollet in Minneapolis and uh, why don't you come and just hang and watch it's my first time ever in a real recording studio and um, we cut a couple songs the last couple songs that came out as as Lip Sync his band um, those songs were cut in that studio which is where I am today this is the studio the room that I'm in so I guess what would that be 30 something six years ago I visited that studio for a week and uh, it's just weird to think that that so I'm sitting in that studio and I'm looking at all the gear and <laughs> right so I I'm gonna do this and he pushed and pushed and pushed and 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 I just obsessed 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 there was one magazine called Mix Magazine that you could get and see pictures of studios and I didn't know anyone in Boston where I was growing up it had anything to do with any music so it was always for me it was just like Minneapolis Minneapolis Uncle Steve you know he produced 
Love is the Law by the, the Suburbs. Mm-hmm. Shut up. Um, and in 1982. <laughs> I mean, not shut up, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that record, that came out in 1984 when that record was finally released. Is the same year that saw Zen Arcade. It's the same year that saw. I think it came out earlier, but. Did it really? I think it, it's listed as 82, but maybe it's 83, but. Okay. In any event, that era, let's call it that. Sure. Right? Um, you got Zen Arcade. You've got Prince, Purple yes. Rain. I mean. It's all happening right here, right there. So my uncle had had, you know, his record deal was with Casablanca Records uh, for Lip Sync, and they he he basically had gotten a, uh, it's called a production deal where he could go find some bands and get them signed. And one of those bands that he brought in to Mercury, who had, uh, I think it was Polygram and Mercury had purchased Casablanca Records when it folded or something. Mm-hmm. They said, uh, Stephen, go find some bands. And, and he brought in the suburbs. And, and, you know, my uncle was was great friends with Paul Stark, who was the kind of leader of the twin tone deal. And uh, so I think the first thing that happened was Uncle Steve did a remix of Dream Hog, that song. And it was like a dance. This is a time when you would do dance remixes. Right. That were extra long versions of the of the song. <laughs> And that they would play at First Avenue on dance nights. And, of course, it kind of crossed, like, this is when dancing became cool again or something. I don't know. Right. For for <laughs> punkers, right? You know. um, so he did these these long mixes. And then he ended up, you know, doing the, the record Loves a Lot. And then he got them their record deal at Mercury. And that's the story of, that was the beginning of the ascent of the of the suburbs on major labels that is i have so much to ask you about but before we get any further i hate to go too far into the show without hearing some music all right so you've picked an artist that i'm not familiar with at all and i again as i told you and i tell every single guest on this show you're responsible for three songs i don't care where i don't care who i don't care well i do care why why is the only one i care about it can be literally anybody so why and tell me who this person okay, is so this next song is uh, by an artist named mark martell and it's called Paradise, and it's a song I wrote with him and Jen DeSilvio uh, one day back, maybe, I don't know, eight-ish years ago back in North Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And Mark is a super talented singer. You might have, you could just look him up, but if, if he basically is the world's greatest Freddie Mercury impersonator right. at the moment. Not really like on a... He's not. He doesn't like look like him or anything. But not he, like an Elvis impersonator. He, no, exactly. He's he's out there playing gigs as the uh, ultimate queen experience. I think it's called. Maybe okay. a, I'm sorry if that's wrong, but it's something like that. All over the world, selling out, basically playing a queen set, and he's unbelievable. And and maybe eight years ago, uh, his manager had, had asked if I would be interested, and he sent me this video of him singing "Somebody to Love" by Queen. I was like, wow. We want to make an original record, though. And so the record we made was called Impersonator. Actually, Mike Rickberg from Rex Daisy co-wrote many of the songs. I brought him in on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and But I know you like the rock, Brian. I do, in fact. There's something about a guitar, and I can't explain it. Like, I don't love all guitar. Do I want to hear Steve Vai? Do I want to hear Joe right. Bonamassa? Not really. This but, is just a riff. But if you find the right <laughs> riff, like, I mean, like, that's why I love Queen so much, right? Quatsa can grab a riff and ride it for five minutes, right. and it never gets boring. So for me, it's aesthetic, but I also, that tone, man, when you find, it's why I fell in love with Husker Du. Bob Mould's guitar tone yeah. is singular. There's no one else who has that tone. So I do, I love to rock i will add, so i don't know I what to say admit it. it's a good song it's uh it rocks and he is such a great singer and uh, and so check it out
I'm duly impressed. Mark Martell with Paradise right there. Obviously, the Freddie, inf- uh, the Freddie Mercury influence is clear, but it sounds like Freddie singing up front instead of my man, Josh Ami, in front of Queens of the Stone Age. Well, well, we, we did. We were influenced. It was heavy. It was big. <laughs> it was beautiful, though, man. Did you play on that track? I did. I'm the drummer and maybe the bass and all the other stuff. <laughs> wow. I, I might be I, literally everyone but Mark Martell. No, I think Mark, Mark is playing guitars but, okay. uh, you know, and singing all the fabulous harmonies and so forth. That, so that's got to come into play. I mean, I mean, there are bands who are like, all right, I don't know who this John Strawberry Fields <laughs> is, but we, but of course everyone does. But I mean, like, you know, being, I want to talk about that in a second, actually. The, the, the producer band relationship or the producer artist relationship is tenuous, right? I mean, it's, it's not, even sometimes, if even if you're good, even if you're empathetic, even if you're very talented at what you do and you do bring out something good in them, it's not good every day, right? Like any relationship. It's just, I mean, the, the, the hope is that you can get over that, that weirdness of 
you know, because sometimes it's just a blind date. You've never met these people before. Right. It's the first time you're thrown in there and now they're singing their heart out and you're now telling them that that's not right. Or, you know, if we could just pull back a little on this part right here and they're like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, there's a little bit of that. And But, you know, for me, I, I try to, you know, just just <clears throat> kind of wipe away all the pretense immediately. And and some people like it. They like a little. Some people like some pomp and circumstance. Some people like to be coddled. Some people don't like there's there's just everybody's different. You have to be good at reading that quickly. Like, does this guy want to hear the word Led Zeppelin? Or not in right. the next four, four days. Some people don't want to hear that you think it sounds like Peter Gabriel right now. Right. Don't say the word Peter Gabriel. <laughs> but, but reading that, I mean, it's but like, I'm it's, thinking in my brain Peter Gabriel the whole time. You know, you're so. But Peter don't Gabriel. say it out loud because it, 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 you know, it can it can derail people creatively. So I don't know. There's a lot. There's a lot of it's and it's not real like you say. It's not like some psychology thing. I mean, you just. It's, it's just like going through well, life. You but. have to read the room, but also there is probably a little psychology because, again, I was joking earlier when I said, you know how artists are flaky. They can be a little more mercurial than your average everyday individual. So, I mean, you do have to read the room and there is a little navigating going on. Yeah? No question. And and I can be mercurial as well. So, oh, dear. I am I have known been known to be crusty. Oh, um, but, you know, things get it's it's good to do that because I think once you you're done with like this Okay, that's a million-selling millionaire artist guy right there. It's just a guy, right? That you're trying to like make the best possible song with right now, well, and you need to get over that. You're both trying to do the bit, right? Yeah. I mean, like you're both professionals. You're there, exactly. and you've got a job and most, to do. I'd say 99 percent of everyone I've worked with, you get there really quickly. There's a few people where it's like they come in, they do their vocal, you never talk to them again, <laughs> and it's like what just happened, you know. Right, well, we'll spill that tea momentarily. First, we've got to take care of a couple of sponsors. Uh, one is our good friends at Forgotten Star Brewing. They're located in Fridley. They take a very common sense approach to a gorgeous space that they have there, a performer World War II production facility right there on the tracks in Fridley. But you can see the skyline of Minneapolis in the background. They're not that far away. They're buried a little bit in an industrial park. So you do have to kind of take a look around there. But once you get to Stack Road or Stacks Road or whatever it is, they're right there. They've got a great outdoor music space. The fall looks to be extremely cooperative in terms of outdoor music. They're dog friendly, indoor and outdoors, and they're just, they're good guys. Yeah, check out their band lineup at ForgottenStarBrewing.com. Also, speaking of lineups, I know that you're probably getting backed up. Being a popular celebrity realtor like you are oh, i don't Sean. think that's true at all. oh i yeah, don't know about no, that no. i saw what you drove up in today stretch hummer getting dropped <laughs> My off least honda accord like the most <laughs> basic vehicle i'm trying to help you out I know, here man. man you know it's not me i know it's not you sean bernard is a realtor for edina realty the 50th in france location but as i've been hearing more and more all the time recently it's not quite as panicky as it was just a few short months it's ago. it's not we're you know i'm hoping for a more balanced market i don't we don't like it when it's just a seller's market it's right. you know, everybody freaks out and you know and then they, they don't sell because they're like well i don't want to live in a box Exactly. Unless it's so, a really nice box. So they start out sometimes probably what John, you know, deals with that people just automatically may not trust you right away. And you're like, come on, man, I'm not going to screw you over, whether it's doing your vocals or helping you buy a house. So I do a ton of research. I'm a big research nerd and hopefully can help you, you know, on the sell side to see, are we pricing the house right? And on the buy side, are you getting the, the house for, you know, in the range of where it should be priced? The other thing that I do that's a little different I donated a portion of every buy and sell to a local artist or musician. And so uh, I just donated one to Mart- Martin Devaney. 
uh, who just has an album out that just came out yesterday. He did his new but, project, Folios. Yeah, so it was really cool to see. Like Martin was blown away that uh, this this client chose him as the local artist to donate to. Donate to. Uh, 612-859-2594 is the number to get a hold of me. That number is also textable. Our guest is John Fields, uh, producer for so many people. I almost want to do a laundry list, but we don't have that kind of time on this show. But, I mean, you start off early on with bands like Mango Jam, Bug. Karen Paris was just our guest wow. here on the last episode, and she talked about how you've been working with her again recently. I mean, Slim Dunlap, Willie Wisely, Greasy Meal, multiple Greasy Meals, Tina and the B-Sides, obviously Love Tina, Minnesota-centric. Actually, before I ask you about moving to L.A., I have one more important question. The nickname Strawberry. Obviously, we all know where Strawberry Fields comes from. Is John Strawberry Fields self-designed, self-designated, or did that come from somebody else? Okay, so have you heard of this band? They're called The Beatles. I have. Okay. (laughs) No, that's why I said we all know where the name comes from. Okay, we do. We all get that. Not when you're under 25, you don't. I got it. All right. All right. um, uh, I'll tell you this. I went to camp many summers up in Maine, and one of the counselors up there just kept calling me strawberry, strawberry, strawberry. So it kind of stuck, but it was like it wasn't. You know, I wasn't producing records and needing a right. You know, a pseudonym or uh-huh. a handle yet. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, many years later, uh, when I started, you know, working on records and so forth, I just thought it was funny. I think the first record I put it on was David Wolfenson, uh solo record, and Abbott Avenue. It was called and. Uh, he loved the Beatles too, so we just wrote John Strawberry Fields, and then the next couple records, Delilahs. It says that and so forth. Right, and then I started working with this band from um, Chicago named Dovetail Joint that were on Aware, yeah. and uh, they had a, a semi rock hit called Level on the Inside. Which, You're freaking me out right now because I haven't thought of Aware records maybe since the mid '90s. So that Wild. that that group uh, was uh, Drop D, kind of a Pumpkins rock group right. this is you know 93x kind of territory well i mean let, let's be honest mid 90s chicago is yeah. way different than mid 90s uh, filter Seattle. the filter oh, was yeah, they yeah. were big into that so they yeah. kind of sounded in that zone and of course i ended up making their first record and they had no idea that i'd just done a bunch of you know funk and uh tropical jam band music nor did they care <laughs> we just made a great record tropical and jam so it was it was one of the first major label records that i made on columbia yeah. and uh we get to the end and they're ready for credits and we're like well what, what do you what, you know produced by uh john fields i said well can you write produced by john strawberry fields and and the singer of that band, I remember, I will never forget, his name is Chuck Gladfelter, and still a friend of mine today, says to me, dude, we're not putting that on the back of our record. I'm sorry, man. We're not putting that on the back of our record. Sorry. You're John Fields on this one. And that was the end of it. Well, so, but I mean, so you do that, that ninety eight joint me out, right? Late, late 90s. But at this point, you've obviously made a name for yourself, right? People know, you're not necessarily a known quantity, but people know you're reliable, you're talented, you're good, you can contribute, you have good insight. These are all crucial elements of a proper producer, right? Maybe so, yeah. Yeah, well, okay, not maybe so, because you're, the rest of your career speaks for itself. But at some point, I mean, even not that far after, you're working with Andrew WK, you're working with Pink just a few short years later from that. That doesn't just happen. If you're a well-known beloved local producer that's one thing what what starts to change what happens in terms of the people you meet or the way things go i mean you don't just get invited to work with pink maybe that's even early on i mean to be honest you do though that's kind of how it works it that's that that's the thing in life is it throws you know it's 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 weird because look I, i was ready when i moved to los angeles in 2002 i think i was 
33 years old already. Okay, right. And I had already been going there quite a bit to, you know, visit. I had a couple of friends, actually, just some Minnesota people that had moved there that kind of were really helping me meet people and just show me the ropes. It's a scary place when you're, you know, in your late 20s and going, well, how am I going to get it? It's, Los like Angeles. it's, you know, and yeah. you're like, I love Minnesota because it's small and I know everyone mm-hmm. and it's easy, but there's no real music business here. I feel very attacked right now. And that's <laughs> <laughs> actually, it's, it's a, as you know, it's one of the most fantastic music cities of in course, the world. But, but here's the whole thing. Think about the number, the raw number of people who moved to LA, whether it be for acting I know. or music it's, or whatever. It's Scary. And so I, I respect it immensely. Like when I hear like, oh no, they pulled up stakes, they moved to LA. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck are yeah, they it's thinking? A, it's a, it was a big deal. But by the time I had had a manager for a few years at that point, who is still my manager today, um, he, he was like, you probably should come out here. I remember I was making a record in Los Angeles called Evan and Jaron. And the producer, my co-producer was T-Bone Burnett on that oh record, which came out in 2000. But wow. it was the summer of 99. And, and I was working with T-Bone for the summer at the... Village Studio in Santa Monica, and he said, "You know, uh, you probably should move out here." And I was like, "He's like, I moved here from, uh, I think it's from Dallas or or something, Fort Worth or something." And he said, "But I'll never buy property here." But, uh, <laughs> the earthquakes, something about the earthquakes. He had some something about the earthquakes. Wait, are you talking Evan and Jaren crazy for this girl? Yeah, we did, I did that song. Yeah, come on. Yeah, really. Um, so that that and that's Michael Bland on drums on that song. By yes. the way, what? Yeah. Well, okay. that's that's right. how it no, works. I, it's all who you know. But that, but wait, but let's be honest. Like that, that's an old cliche. But whether we're t- almost every aspect of entertainment, it doesn't mean you can't get in. But it right. never hurts having friends or people no. that, that always treat people well. Never burn a damn bridge because you never ever know what the next door. So is when I be. got to Los Angeles, the first thing that happened was I met a a, a manager of an artist. It, what what will happen is every once in a while there'll be a, what I call a blind date where you're you know my manager Frank will say, hey, there's this artist from Canada. He's looking for somebody to produce a couple songs. They've already done most of the album. They need someone to do the last couple. Will you meet with him and his manager? Uh, and that guy's name was John Lachey, the manager. And the artist was uh, called uh, James Renald. And he never put out the record that we made. But I met them. I impressed the manager. The manager also managed a band called Switchfoot. And he said... Well, you know, you've had a very, very long and fruitful yeah, relationship Yeah, we've done with. three or four records. Yeah. And he also managed Mandy Moore, who I also made a mm. couple records with, and and that's kind of how. So it's it's so you meet one one manager that has a stable of artists, and he's he's you know he says, "Wow, I just worked with this this great producer. He should you know this is, was easy, it was painless. Let's make it." So he just said, "Hey, you should work with Switchfoot." That's how that happened. The first record I made in uh, L.A. the first month I got there was the beautiful letdown by Switchfoot. And uh, that's kind of how things happen is, you know, just a meeting turns into an actual sometimes they're test gigs. You do like one song or you do one day and then they're like, oh, we love this. Sometimes they don't work out. But when they do, that's, you know, you didn't know them two days ago and now you're making the pink record, which I mean, brilliant. And so I want to talk about that sort of the, the poppier end of your arc, because, you know, I think I don't think there's any shame in that game. In fact, I think there's a lot of greatness in that game. The what? The, the, the expectations are so high and the number of people who suddenly are getting involved it's got to be a lot different than some indie band just gathering at the studio every day I want to talk about that just ahead but first I would like to know about your love now obviously with your love of pop music and intricate production I'm not surprised that you like Todd Rundgren that that comes as zero <laughs> surprise to me because it seems very much in lockstep with your attitude that stuff matters to you right you want to hear a record that sounds really really good yeah why this song 
Um, this song is called Healer off the record Healing, which came out in 1980. Todd played and basically did made this record completely in isolation, alone, no outside interface with anyone. Maybe his girlfriend slash wife at the time might have hit record while he ran down and played the drums or something. Mm-hmm. But he lived up in Woodstock at this time, had his own studio, and basically made this record that really just really emotionally affects me for some reason. But why him? He you know, obviously fantastic rocker, songwriter, singer, everything. But the production, producing and wrangling a band like XTC who had been, you know, had, had, had I don't know, cheese grated through producers for the last 10 records before that. Right. And Todd just came in there and he doesn't give a fuck is the thing. He'll just say, here's what I want to do. You know, he doesn't care if you're famous, rich, whatever. He's just going to say, this is, that's flat. Take it again. Do You know, these are stories I've heard. I don't know. I've never worked with him or anything like that. But um, I really appreciate all the records that he made, especially the ones between 1983 and 87. Something special happened about his mixing, his console, whatever. He cared the most, I think, at that point about the sound and the sonics and snare drums. And you remember, like, The Pursuit of Happiness, that band? Or, uh, I don't know. There's just, Are you kidding me? I'm an adult now, The Pursuit that of song, Happiness? That's Todd. Is it really? Yes. Because I mean, they were like sort of a they were sort of a one hit wonder MTV band on 120 yes. minutes. I remember it really well. But that was that would have been that, about 86. Yeah. But like Jill Sabule, um, uh, Bourgeois Tag, The Tubes, uh, Love Bomb record. Something about his 1985 and 86 and 87 output really, really touched me. I also happened to be at the time like the most receptive to it. And the most, you know, I was 18 years old, whatever. I, this is, I'm studying everything. I'm studying Prince. I'm studying Mutt Lang. I'm studying my heroes. But something about Todd's music and and the records that he produced really touched me. And this particular song uh, on on one of his solo records is not a hit. It wasn't a single. It just really is great. My
again, there are certain songwriters slash producers who are so intricate and so devoted to their craft that I think unless you're deeply informed on either of those subjects, you probably miss a lot, even if you enjoy it. Like, that's a beautiful song. But I'll bet there are things happening there that if I started now and studying, I wouldn't understand before the time It's I a hard dead. sell for, for lo- even my musician friends, it's a hard sell to Todd Love. Uh, I don't know why, but there's something he does on keyboards and the way he mm-hmm. writes and composes. It's very, like, Leonard Bernstein-ish. Um, just this modality that he's constantly changing key, but it just makes sense. And he's always singing incredible vocals and the lyrics are always great. So, but it is a hard sell for, for, for some of my friends to even like Mike Rickberg. He's like, uh, one time I took him to see Todd and he was like, ah. well, I gotta be honest. I, I'm, I'm there with you. I like him fine, but I don't have, I know people who have a deep, deep Rundgren. There's love. a special type. But I, I think you would you agree with me that that there's more to be like there are there are certain cliches right but like a musician's musician right or a producer's right. producer having the level of knowledge intimacy and experience that you have there are things you appreciate that are going on there that other people simply Maybe, are not aware of I don't I think I didn't know at, when I was fifteen in love with him as well I didn't right. know the stuff I know now but it's just maybe it's just because that's what I studied. I mean, uh, next to the Beatles and XTC, Todd is like the most like uh, full catalog. Every song, study, 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 study tapes in my car on repeat. And maybe that's why it's just an emotional thing brings me back to being 16 or whatever. But it also is really great composition. Well, let me ask you about the other side of that then, because I know friends who are filmmakers. I know friends who are chefs that it's hard for them to sit down to a meal and let go and just be like, I'm going to enjoy this meal without sort of dissecting it in their head, right? And a filmmaker, they go out and watch a movie, and it's great, but they're looking at shots. They're looking at cuts. They're looking at composition. So for you, with the level of experience, the breadth and the depth of what you've done in the music world, is it possible for you still, and I'm genuinely curious about this, is it possible for you to sit down, tune in, turn out you know turn on and drop out and just like be like this is a fucking jam or i mean are you ever able to turn off that part of your ear that's like oh they could have done this with that hi-hat or oh you know what if they had I run mean, this through this, this gotta particular be honest, channel at this age it's it's hard the, with the state of modern pop at yeah. least it's, uh-huh. it's hard because the the music is so simple and i am so used to like steely dan and michael mcdonald and xtc right. and todd rundgren levels of sophistication that when you hear these these same freaking four chords over and over and over and over mm. and over and just the same beat and the 808s and whatever i i'm guilty i do all of the same you know pop tricks and so forth today but it's just not as exciting to me and it doesn't have the breadth of uh just i'm, I'm not interested as much Every once in a while, I will hear a new band. I remember, uh, it's funny, now they're not even a new band. But when, when I heard Bombay Bicycle Club, yeah. I freaked out. I was like, this is the greatest thing I've heard in a long time. Well, pretty Baroque compared to a lot of bands that had been coming out up until that But they point. had Muse, they had, they. what was cool about that band, and uh, the song was called Lights Out, Words Gone, I think, was it had, um, it, it, it had like synth, it had live playing, it had like funk influences actually mm. but it was like radiohead also right. vocally <laughs> right. and and brits always making the coolest music so of course. I don't know. but it's hard i gotta be honest it is hard to to listen to something new and get into it i i try i mean i'm getting constantly barraged with do you want to work with this band do you want to work with this artist here's my demo here's you know so i have to quickly make decisions and listen one time yeah. and be like do you want to do this or not 
Any regrets on things you passed on in the past? Um, yeah, yeah. I passed on the first uh, One Republic was there. What are they called? One Republic. Yeah, they were called Republic. Yeah. Um, Ryan Tedder's band. I passed on that first record because I I just made a mistake. So Ryan Tedder has <laughs> written and produced some of my favorite songs of all time. I'm not a Colby Calais right. guy, but she's got a song called Brighter Than the Sun. Yeah. My favorite Adele song. Rumor has it he wrote and produced. Yeah. They, my favorite One Republic song, Counting Stars. Yeah. He's but inv- like there's something about his songwriting and production right. style. Super talent. That I adore. I don't love all One Republic, and I don't love all those other artists either, but. But there, sometimes there's somebody whose aesthetic appeals to you and what you do. Let's talk about you briefly because, um, you know, briefly, uh, I, God, I could do this for another five hours, but I'm not going to. Might be a little while though, Sean. Clear, clear your afternoon. Um, so I mean, you get to LA and you're already, you've got a name, right? You're a known quantity to a certain array of people. But then at some point, something opens up. Something's got to change, you know, because even though LA is a relatively close knit community and not unlike the Twin Cities, I'm sure, it's probably not quite two degrees of separation, but it's probably no more than four. When you're working in the music industry, word gets around. This guy's great. This guy's good. This guy worked out great with this one. Did you hear this track he did? Whatever. Your profile increases by some order of I magnitude, I mean, there's one right? really simple thing you could say about that. Um, have a hit. Well, it doesn't hurt, right? <laughs> and so it, we it had does a hit. not hurt. The hit was called Dare You to Move by Switchfoot. And yeah. it was um, a big song. And they, they had a couple. They had... Meant to Live and Dairy to Move. Those two kind of rock rock hits. Those came out in 2003, four, And um, immediately I started, I thought, I, I swear I was thinking, Coldplay's going to call. Radiohead's going to call. All these cool, all these cool British bands are going to call. And, right. and instead, um, the calls came in and the, the next records that I made were Clay Aiken, the Backstreet Boys, um, you know, pop groups that I wasn't yeah. expecting. And the Jonas Brothers were, were a big one. Because uh, the I had the the guy that signed the Jonas Brothers, John Lind at Hollywood Records, uh, they, w- when he had their his initial meeting with them, they they he said, "What do you think about producers? I mean, these are like fourteen, fifteen year old right. brothers. What about producers? Well, do you know the guy John Fields who did the Switchfoot album? And he says, "I actually do." Calls me up. He's like, "Have you heard of these Jonas Brothers?" And I said, "Nope." He said, "Well, look up online and meet me at my office at two o'clock in Burbank." I go down there. The kids play acoustic guitars in front of me. We started the record like a week later. So, I mean, you're with Jonas Brothers on the ground floor of their uh, career. They had made one record before me, but still, relatively speaking, ground yes, floor. We did the. First, I did. Yeah. So, but it was it was because of Switchfoot and yeah, because yeah. they loved um, that particular record, "Beautiful Letdown," which is you know as a whole record. It's it's fantastic, not just like the two hit singles or whatever, because it was it was made more. This is back when you know making an album was an important statement. It wasn't Still a just thing. like let's have hit 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 hundred twenty beats per minute, make it fast, make it short, make it great. You know, right. this was like let's make an experience, and uh, that kind of died in the last maybe ten to fifteen years. I mean, I'm sure people still do it. It's just it's just rare, and it's not it's yeah. not the order of the day. But I mean, so we're talking not just Jonas Brothers. We're talking about Pink, Demi Lovato. We're talking about Selena Gomez, Miley Cyrus. And see, to me, there's no shame in that game. That means that you are successful. You are operating at the top of your craft. Miley Cyrus's people do not get in touch with you if they don't think that you are a wizard. I mean, Brian, it's simple as this. The guy that signed the Jonas Brothers signed 
signed Miley Cyrus, <laughs> there we signed go. Saluni Gomez. Okay, whatever it takes, right? Signed Demi Lovato and said, you're going to work with all of them. But think but think about it. I mean, like, you know, so it, with everything at that level in entertainment, right? It's a high-risk, high-reward proposition, but they're also not taking chances. If they don't think you're the guy, 0% chance they call you back, 0% chance they bring you into the studio. It's interesting because, well, just this one particular mentor of mine, this guy, John Lind, and he, the guy who signed the Jonas Brothers and all these acts at Hollywood and Disney, um, was a successful songwriter in his own right. He wrote the song Boogie Wonderland. And oh he, I'm God. familiar. Yeah. And he wrote the song uh, Crazy for You by Madonna. And he wrote the song wow. Save the Best for Last by Vanessa Williams. Holy crap. So this guy who at the time is, you know, in his early 60s and I'm, you know, when he meets me and he says, you know, where do you come from? And I said, I'm from Minneapolis. And he said, tell me your story. And I tell him, you know, my uncle Steve wrote Funky Town. And he goes, I wrote. Boogie Wonderland. Holy shit. And it's these two kind of Jewish guys that yeah, yeah. are the not what you'd think. <laughs> um, and he just, we just fell in love with each other. And, and you know, he'd been working with a bunch of jokers at the time, just making, you know, uh, when you're working with pop acts, it's like a lot of times the song comes with the producer. Right. And then the young 14-year-old sings or whatever. And those producers are generally not that experienced. Sometimes they are. But most of the time they're not. They're laptop people that maybe haven't done it before. And he recognized in me that that I, I know how to get a vocal mm-hmm. that it's just easier for him to to interface with me on this project than, you know, nine other people. So he would just hand me these projects and, you know, they well they I mean, they were different degrees of successful. Was, I mean, maybe it's not necessarily because of the music, because there was a machine, the mouse, they call it. But, um, you know, they had a television channel, the Disney Channel, yeah. which was a built-in advertising for all these groups. Well, that helps. But, I mean, like, so, again, speaking to, I mean, it's one thing, You're at this point, you're clearly established. You're clearly successful. You're clearly going to be a go-to, not just for your friend. Your name is out there well beyond that, okay? But when you get to that level, I have to imagine that it's a lot different than when you sat down, even with Switchfoot, or go years before going in with the Delilahs or Rex Daisy. It's not just a bunch of guys stumbling at two in the afternoon with their gear, yeah. getting set up and going through it. You've got handlers. You've got management. You've got agents. I mean, there there has to be a whole new sort of strata or multiple strata of all these other you things. Th- you'd think so, but there really isn't. Really? It's, it's, it's I mean... You know, that blows the, my mind. In the case of the, the, the Disney records that I made, and, and many of them, I mean, even working with Backstreet Boys, they had bodyguards and so forth. You know, they're famous people in Los Angeles, right. kind of need that because they get hacked with. with. Yeah. I mean, did, so did you have people outside the studio yeah, if they found they, they, out they, the Jonas uh, Brothers were there? Yes. And, and they had their own security, not at the beginning. Yeah. You know, but they, they had security. And a lot of times it's their parents, to be honest, because they're 15. Right. <laughs> and, and their parents are my age. Yeah. So and who, you know, became friends with all the parents and, and yeah. they trusted me to, to leave their kid with me for five hours or whatever. Uh-huh. You know, um, so like, who's this fields creeper? But yeah, What's I mean, going on over there? I, I've We're never in some pizza money. I've never hit that level. <laughs> I haven't seen stuff like that. Like you hear about like these Beyonce stories of like, you know, we're going to take out the entire floor of the hotel. I've never seen anything like that right. in, in my in my history. Of, you but you, like you never had anyone leaning over your shoulder while you're sitting behind the board trying to make a, the best record you know how to make with the artist at hand, which, again, the producer's job, I think, is one of the most wildly, even with all the 
behind the music and all the documentaries and everything, I feel like the producer's job is still the greatest unsung story with rare exception, right? I mean, like, you know, you see certain documentaries about Eno or Visconti because that sort of lends towards where I'm from or or a few others. But I feel like the the nuance and what it takes to, you know, because Switchfoot is different than Miley Cyrus. Sorry, it is, but it requires you to come up with the same level of expertise every time you sit down behind the board. Pretty much. And that's, I mean, so to me, that's an un- unsung thing, but I guess I always have this old school sort of, um, you know, rock and roll, high level label influence mentality. Like, you never had anyone leaning over your shoulder like, hey, we need uh, a little more of that in yeah, there. Yeah, and, and sometimes that Bring is... Bring my girl's voice up a little bit there. That's, uh, or, that's the record company guy, uh, the A&R person. Sometimes, sometimes it's the manager yeah. Sometimes it's the actual artist uh, who, and and usually they're good feedback. I'd say honestly, most of the time it's good feedback. Now, when it's bullshit feedback, I can tell. And you know, as you say, like, hey, I moved that fader, and I didn't really. Right. But it's I don't have a lot of experience <laughs> how, how, how with that. How about that? Is that better? Is that, oh, that's yeah. way better. Well done. Uh, yeah, good. You know, Thanks for doing so. What I no, told you. I mean, it's it's. You know, most of the time, people just give you the space to to do what you need to do. You know, for for me, when I would get a job. Uh, you know, they'd give me the song, for instance, and they'd say, hey, you know, you're going to produce the song for Miley, or let's just say. And, you know, I know what that needs to be. They, they they play me the demo. It's got a, you know, punk rock beat or whatever on a drum machine. And I'm like, OK, well, I'm going to get Michael Bland to play the drums. Right. He's my favorite drummer. I'm not saying that really, but he is. But I have many, <laughs> many other favorite drummers. I understand. Yeah. I understand. And um, but he's also a muso who understands like myself he kind of drums like a producer in a way that he knows what it should be in boundaries so like when you when you play these drum fills they should be like Stuart copeland on the ride but with like bunny carlos fills yes or something but don't go outside of those lines and now some people want to go all outside of that and get all nuts and do that but (laughs) so i cast properly that's not why you were brought in no. And when I play, you know, my own parts and so forth, I do the same thing. I compartmentalize. I make boundaries about like, I'm not going to go outside. I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, some science, but I just know it's like, I'm going to play like an 11th grader right now on the bass. But that's, but it is science. I mean, like, so it's one of the reasons the cars to this day remain my favorite band of one of my the favorite greatest. bands of all time. Greg Hawks on the keyboards. This was a, a, the rare new wave band that was equal parts keyboards and guitar. Yep. Greg Hawks' efficiency, and especially Elliot Easton's efficiency on guitar. You've got eight bars. Rock me the end, and now we're moving back. And that's into Roy the song. Thomas. That's Roy Thomas Baker saying, um, "My friend, you got eight bars. Go, go." But no, and he, you know why? It's great because he re- he prepared at home. Yeah. Is he really, was ready. Elliot was ready with that solo, and you know he every single so he's never wasted a bar of a solo because and, he didn't get many of them. You know, but, so just well, that's an amazing example, just because the producer was so important. I mean, they went from RTB Roy Thomas Baker, to, you know, straight to Mutt. Right. Um. I mean, they did one record in between without without anyone, and then right. Shipley and Mutt took over on Heartbeat City. Yep. And uh, then they were done. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it could nothing good lasts forever, but it is good to work with professionals. I'm going to ask you one personal question here, and if it's too personal, it's not really personal, but if, if you don't like the, where it goes, we can cut it out. Okay. Miley Cyrus seems cool as shit. Is she cool as shit? Absolutely. She seems... Here's the deal. I think when she came up as Hannah Montana, everyone wanted to automatically dismiss her as a thing that they already thought they understood. Every time I've seen her interviewed, every time I see some weird little YouTube offshoot, every time I see anything that exposes even a little bit of what she might be behind the well-produced universe that's around her, she seems cool as hell, man. I mean, it's not just her. The whole, you know, I've said this a lot about child stars, and I've 
worked with many, many, and most, most, I would say, the reason they're they're there is because they have been since since a young age have been working around adults. Now think about this: you're you're eight years old, you're sitting in the back of a Broadway show, right, and you're got the child part in Les Mis or something, right. and you're sitting there with your understudy, a second child, because there's child labor laws, and you literally, literally are playing video games while you got, I mean, I don't know who's upstairs, Hugh Grant or whatever, <laughs> right? And, you know, and and you you do the show eight times a week yep. and. The only people around you are adults and they expect perfection. Yep. They expect, you know, attention and detail. And you learn to do that uh, as, an, as a young actor like Miley or, or any of these kids that were on shows at the time. I mean, that's, you know, there's a lot of money involved. There's a lot of pressure involved and they just need to deliver. So, you know, most of them don't fuck around. Yeah. And, and their parents are kind of right nearby, you know, making sure that things go, don't go off the rails. I've seen a couple off the railsers, but um, most on. of them, uh, well, no, no, no. I'm Danny Bonaducci, you ever heard of him? I have. Wow. I, have, I understood that things got a little rough for him. Yeah. For a while. I heard yeah. about that. I don't Leif, know him personally. Leif Garrett. Um, yeah. But, you know, but uh, I would say, you know, generally speaking, it has nothing to do with like Disney. It's wholesome. It's just, nothing. honestly, it's just, they're pros. And you're just, you know, when you're young and you're a pro, there's something special there. You get, you know, it's, 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 it's awesome to watch. And now that they're all not even young adults, they're, you know, in their late twenties. Now these kids that when, so, you know, when I was working with Miley, she'd be 15, 16 years old. Right. She was, you know, acting like an adult in terms of like our conversations and right. so forth then, you know, so it's, it's yes, she's amazing. Yeah. I just, I, she seems cool. Every single time I learn anything new about her, I'm like, Miley seems cool as hell, man. And so I'm just, I'm, that warms my heart to hear that. I could literally do this all day, but we've got to wrap this up. The average podcast, they already quit listening, even though it's exciting and there's lots of interesting content. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Don't say that right in front of the guests. Two things before I let you go. One is, will you come back? Absolutely. We just, we haven't, we haven't, I I don't, we didn't even scratch the surface on everything, but I feel like the first time a guest comes on, we got to get the basics down, right? We got to lay the foundation. You can pick some tributaries and we can can go down. Absolutely. Wherever you want to go. Yeah. If you think we're not talking about parachutes losing sleep, you are sorely mistaken. That'll be happening. Um, There were so many things I wanted to ask about. Don't forget Palmer's. What? I won't forget Palmer's. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm ready. Just saying. Come on. Who are you fucking talking to right now? <laughs> now you made me forget my second question. Oh, my second question. You know what? I'm just going to take care of Palmer's right now. Uh, Palmer'sBar.net. Palmer's Bar. That is the website you go to to find out who's going to be performing at Palmer's Bar. They are a staple of West Bank culture. And let's be honest, uh, some very important parts like, say, oh, I don't know, the Triple Rock, other portions of West Bank culture have vanished forever. Luckily, Palmer's survived the pandemic and Tony and crew who run things there are doing a great job. This last weekend if i had not been out of town i absolutely would have been there for butcher's union you got most of dillinger four got a couple other people you got christy costello in the band i've seen butcher's union a couple times and every once in a while it's fun to go in and say you know what i feel like tonight not thinking i want my face melted off now that doesn't mean they're not good but every once in a while you just have to go and live in the presence of loud sonic rock action and that's Butcher's Union. But that's not what they do every single night at Palmer's. What do they do? You can get the full rundown, palmersbar.net, for a full rundown of all their outdoor shows. My last question to you before we get to the final song. You have been plugged in in a unique way compared to most people, both here in town, moving to L.A. You decide to come back to the Twin Cities, but it, you still stay in touch. You know people at a strata that a lot of people don't know, whether they're producers, 
I don't know, managers, influencers, whatever they might be. Is there anything musically right now that you're really excited about? Like you're like, oh my God, I can't wait for this record to come out or that you're enjoying it? I mean, most, most, I mean, I hate to say just what I'm working on. I mean, that's fine. You know, I I just finished a record with a a fantastic artist named Ben Rector Mm -hmm. from, he lives in Nashville and um, I met him through Corey Wong, who used to be in his band and uh, we ended up, you know, becoming great collaborators. So I've made part of his last record and all of the new one. Great. And that comes out, I think, in the spring. We just got it mastered yesterday. So oh. that, I'm really excited about that. And I'm making a new flip record with Bryn. Come on. Right wow. now. We're, Bryn's been on the show. Yeah. We're, we're half, maybe more than half done. Um, you know, I've known him forever. And his brother Kai is one of my best buds. Kai's so, been on um, the show, too. We yeah. are stoked to to see where that's going to go. And um, I mean, there's, there's lots of stuff I'm excited about. But that, Well, that's cool. So, I mean, since you've moved back from L.A., you moved back here. Family reasons, right? Yeah, I mean, essentially, yeah. yeah. Well, because, I mean, it's a great place. We all love it here, right? I mean, yeah. people ask me what the podcast is about. I'm like, it's about living in Minnesota because it's fucking rad here, man. I it's love awesome. it. But since you've moved back, you're not you're not slowing down. You're still producing records at the breakneck pace yeah, that I mean, you always have. Same, same deal. I mean, the last year or so, a couple years in Los Angeles, I started taking a poll of all the people that were working with me. I mean, most of them didn't live in L.A. They would be right. flying to work mm. with me from... To be honest, most of them lived in freaking Nashville for some reason, which right? seems to be like the main population center of all musicians ever right yeah. now. But they would all fly out and they'd, they'd work with me there and I'd say, would you ever mind coming to Minnesota? He's like, sure, we don't care. We're not here yeah. because of your crappy studio in the valley. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, because we're making a record. So I was stoked to move back to Minneapolis. And, um, you know, we kept a, a home here the whole time that we lived in L.A. Fabulous. And so it was, it was an easy transition. And I got into this awesome studio and I've been there now for five plus years. So it's 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 been great. And people are flying here now. And I get to dip into the local stuff a lot more. I just started working on a record with uh, Dan Murphy and Jeff Arundel, their new band, what? which is called The Scarlet Goodbye. Okay, new information has come to light, bro. Um, I didn't know anything I think they're, about that. Well, they're playing, I think, I don't know when this airs, but I think they're playing the night after Thanksgiving at the... Uh, Hook and ladder. This is going to air today, so this is going oh. live on October twelfth, right? Yep. So, um, but you know, just uh, old. I mean, I had worked on a bunch of Soul Asylum records, the last four, I think, and yep. Dan left the band a couple records ago. But you know, they kind of got in contact with me about kind of coming in and kind of mixing this new record. So we just in the last week or so been working on that, and uh, so it's exciting to to be able to like you know. Whole, you know, just just reconnect with old friends, make great music. I have a Beatles band now, the Shabby Road Orchestra. What? Where we nice. play? We just played the Parkway a couple weeks mm-hmm. ago, right? And um, two doors down here from with the all Star my all my, you know, just a stalwart, mm-hmm. uh, but just just a huge, awesome team of. I think there's like fourteen to twenty one people in the group recreating Beatles albums. So it's just fun. I would never do that in Los Angeles, right? So this is this place is the greatest place. Well, I, I'm so glad to hear that, and I think you should know. Over the course of my entire professional career, I have never heard your name, not once, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting in front of me, I've never once heard your name referenced in anything less than the most glowing terms. You're revered, man. People fucking love you. Thank you. They do. Thank you. And well, and it's well deserved from everything that I've heard so far, but we'll see what happens on the next episode of the podcast when you come back. <laughs> yeah. John Strawberry Fields is our guest. And before we bid him a final farewell, I want to thank all of our sponsors, Smart Start MN, Palmer's Bar, 
Sean, thank you. Oh, you're welcome, Brian. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> also, thanks to Forgotten Star Brewing, all of our Patreon members, uh, Audio Quip, who have given us all the beautiful equipment in this fine room right here. Without them, we are literally nothing, or at least just doing this into our um, smartphones, which wouldn't sound nearly as good. And if you need any sort of audio equipment, Audio Quip, we highly, highly recommend. We are going to go. We'll be back again next time, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. It's not etched in stone yet, but... um. Tommy Barbarella, I think, is going to be our next Ooh, guest. How about that one? Yeah. I know that guy. <laughs> exactly. Um, also, though, uh, local DJ Dean Vaccaro wants to come in and do an all-Halloween music episode. Nice. So we've got a couple things lined up for you in the not-too-distant future, but that's going to do it for episode 194 of The Brian Oak Show. Thanks to everybody involved. Now, before we bid you a fond farewell, and again, thank you very much, John. I appreciate it. it. This last song, this goes back a ways. It's hard to imagine. You know, time, it's weird how time works, right? It all seems like it's just going and everything's cool there's no way this could have possibly been almost 20 years ago uh, it was made the summer of 2001 oh my god so it was more than 20 and years it ca- ago it came out i believe it, i believe the record came out yeah right after that but we made this song i get wet by with andrew wk and jimmy Koo in my basement studio in golden valley so jimmy Koo wow. was in the minnesota band coup de gras right? correct okay and so jimmy Koo somehow gets hooked up on yeah. the national level and he's suddenly playing with andrew WK. well he he was brought in by the anr to you know to coach and teach and so uh this young michigan kid who was 20 at the time andrew Wilkes Creer, right. who uh, was, you know, not that experienced on a live level. And they said, you need Jimmy Koo, you show him the ropes. Yeah. So they start making the record. And of course, that wasn't going well. So Jimmy Koo says, I know this guy in Minnesota that can 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 help us finish. So that's how how I ended up getting involved. And it was that summer of 2001. It, we, we finished right before 9-11. And we mixed this record in Los Angeles with a, a friend of mine, RIP, uh, Mike Shipley. And uh, it's one of the greatest experiences I've had making this record because, man, this music is just out of fucking control.